We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. With me today is Colleen Rowley. Colleen has served as a special agent with the FBI and was assigned to the Omaha, Nebraska, Jackson, and Mississippi divisions. And beginning in 1984, she spent six years working in the New York City field office on investigations involving Italian organized crime. During this time, she served three temporary assignments in the United States Embassy in Paris and the consulate in Montreal. In 1990, she was transferred to the FBI's Minneapolis field office, where she became chief division counsel. In 2002, Rowley wrote a memo to FBI Director Robert Mueller detailing the mishandling of the intelligence her office had gathered later that year testified before the Senate and also testified before the 9-11 Commission about the FBI's pre-9-11 lapses due to its internal organization and mishandling of information. In 2006, she ran as a Democratic farmer, Labor Party candidate for Congress in Minnesota's 2nd Congressional District. Colleen, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, I hate to start off uh, right off the bat with one minor correction. Oh, please. Um, but I did not testify to the 9-11 Commission. Uh, almost no one who was part of the Joint Intelligence um, Committee inquiry did testify. Uh, the reason for that was because they didn't want to duplicate what the Jiki had already done. So they used uh, stuff from the Joint Intelligence Committee or they chose not to use, for instance, uh, the 28 pages that are in the uh, Joint Intelligence Committee, Zellico decided not to go into any of that. However, for the most part, they were supposed to not duplicate what had already occurred. And so most of the people who are witnesses, uh, certainly the agents, for instance, in Minneapolis, you know, none of, very few people I know were testified to the, to the 9-11 Commission per se. And the reason for that was they didn't want to duplicate. Now, I did testify to one other entity, though, besides what, uh, besides to the Joint Intelligence Committee, the Senate Judiciary Committee. I was also debriefed by the Inspector General investigation. In fact, my memo led directly to that Inspector General investigation uh, about the various uh, FBI lapses. Uh, the three main ones being one, the Musawi case, um, <clears throat> uh, secondly, the Phoenix memo, and thirdly, the fact that the FBI was uninformed about the, the two hijackers that had come into California that the CIA had known about and were tracking. So those three things 
And it's about a 400, I, I don't remember exactly the number of pages. I reviewed it once and it's several, it's a few hundred pages long. It took a couple of years for that inspector general report to come out. And it didn't come out until I wanna say 2000, it finally got released in 2000, well, it got done in 2004. It didn't actually get publicly released until 2006, the Inspector General report that went into what how the FBI had messed up. Right, I have and to apologize. And or the CIA. Right, I have to apologize there because it reminded me of an incident and I interviewed him, was involving Anthony Schaefer of the Able Danger Program in which he gave testimony to the 9-11 Commission when uh, Bill Zelkow visited him at Bagram Air Force Base in Afghanistan, yet they didn't even use the interview in the 9-11 Commission. So I, I just want to apologize yes. right off the bat. And the other, the other big one that was never used, who uh, I know very well, is, is Bogdan Djokovic. You should try to interview him sometime. He's written an entire book about this. He was the F... Um, the FAA's red team leader that found all the lapses at the airports. And he, he was, the, uh, you know, testified at length to the 9-11 commission mm. officially, et cetera. And they left it out completely of their final of their report. And of course it's very embarrassing. Bogdan's uh, story is extremely embarrassing to everyone. And Zellico left that out too. Yeah, it just seems that this is a consistent history with the 9-11 Commission <laughs> yeah, itself. Yeah, exactly. Um, I do have a question for you, though, because I live in New York, and this is very interesting for me. Um, when you worked in the New York City field office regarding Italian organized crime, were you involved with the Pizza Connection case? Because Louis Free was a prosecutor, I think, back then. Right. Well, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, organized crime strike force at, in, I don't know, 80, 87? was led by Louis Free. He was the head of all the prosecutors in that organized crime strike force. So yes, I knew Louis Free very well from that point. Also Chertoff. Chertoff right. was the uh, prosecutor on the uh, Gambino case. Excuse me. He, he was initially on one of the family uh, RICO prosecutions, but then he was the head of the commission case. Mm. And so my role, I was on the Colombo family uh, prosecution. And so uh, we had two or three other prosecutors, Aaron Marcoux, Bruce Baird, I still remember their names. Um, and they were the prosecutors of that family, organized crime family prosecution of the Columbos. Now the Colombo, the, the thing that I actually it was another case agent really astute case agent that I was like a main assistant to. And we uncovered the labor racketeering uh, predicate that all of the families were engaged in fixing prices of, of the concrete that went into superstructure. So this began in the 80s, at some point in the early 80s, they were all splitting up the four families, not the bananos, because they had fallen out, out of power but already by that time, but the four families were splitting up all of the superstructure concrete work amongst about seven major uh, companies. So those companies, sometimes, you know, they were kind of forced to by the mob and other times they liked it. 
because they were getting guaranteed, uh, it was a price fixing. So they were all in this big conspiracy and some of the companies, for instance, the Gambino companies and the uh, um, Genovese companies liked it. They liked it because they were guaranteed. And the other company that was part of this was, was the concrete supplier. So the concrete supplier in New York was part of this thing. In fact, they were the ones with, I actually trans, transcribed a conversation about give the numbers to, mm. and it was one of the heads of the concrete companies. He was the guy fixing it. Right. So this, this very key thing that I was had a direct role in, and the other agent had started the whole thing. They, were, they planted uh, microphones in the car of the district council the president of the District Council of Laborers in New York was a made Colombo capo. Okay, so uh, he was a high level. And he was working, of course, with other families as well, but he was a Colombo guy. His two sons were the locals presidents of the two locals. Right. Okay, their last name was Scopo, S-C-O-P-O. And um, we, I, th I think his wall, first, one of them was Ralph Scopo, I believe. Ralph Scopo. So I listened in and it actually transcribed all of these conversations of Scopo with, um, with uh, concrete companies, concrete company people. And they were, they were from his, first of all, it was his social club. Then it was his, uh, in his home telephone. But eventually it was the cars that they were meeting in and the cars where they met in, they felt safer to talk in. And so they were long, you know, usually about an hour long. And, it, you know, it was like transcribing was the F word about every third word was the F word. Mm -hmm. And I did this for almost two years. Uh, so nothing you ever see on exciting television shows where, you know, you're chasing people and all that. No, it's listening in and transcribing. And it was very hard. I mean, you practically hurt your hearing sure. uh, because you had to go over it a million times to perfect the conversation so that when the jury heard it, it was, you know, the same conversation they were listening to. Very hard to do. And especially in places with like the social club was really hard because you had everybody talking at once. Right. And uh, so that's what I did. And that predicate there's a show on Netflix now about the commission case. I don't know if you've watched it. No. If you're interested, you should watch. I don't remember the name of it, but it's uh, a three-part series. And of course, uh, Giuliani is in it. He's taking all the credit for things. But also these commission case agents that I was one, like my best friend was one of the commission case agents. And so they're like the, some of the heroes of it and, and the people who planted the bugs, et cetera. And the labor racketeering predicate is, was actually the strongest part of the entire case of the commission case. Mm. Now, the pizza connection was a, a drug case. And that actually, I knew a little bit about it too, but a lot of those were first uh, generation Sicilians, not the organized mob, mm. Banana, Colombo, Genovese, and whatever. They are, they're very different. So actually a guy that lived in New Jersey, just around the block from me was one of the main uh, first targets of the pizza connection. And then he later became a cooperating witness and he lived right. I found out the guy lived right around the corner from me yeah. in New Jersey, kind of scary stuff. You know, yeah. to be, his, his kids went to the same elementary school 
And I figured out, oh my God, why, you know, he knows, and his wife said, oh, you're in the FBI. So, I mean, it was like, I was like, I, I thought I should be able to get a transfer out of that because sure. this guy lived right around the corner. So you, you jump straight from the fire from the New York uh, uh, terrorist organized crime force and you're in Minneapolis now. And during this time, uh, there was pertinent data showing radical fundamentalists um, during, throughout the 1990s, but it wasn't really a big issue within say the global intelligence community. The FBI, New York division, actually was probably one of the better divisions and Minneapolis and Phoenix. Um, however, previous reports given to the FBI about Al-Qaeda-linked supporters training at flight schools, which was outlined in Ken Williams' Phoenix memo, but it was also outlined years before that in a Philippines police report concerning the interrogation of Abdul Hakim Arad in the 1995 Bajenka plot about sleeper cells inside the United States training at flight schools. Now, the previous director, uh, Louis Free, and then later Mueller, didn't act on this intelligence. And why do you think that is? You know, in hindsight, I never knew how bad Louis Free was uh, when I, of course, when I worked in New York and later on when he was director, I, you know, I knew he had some faults about certain things, but I never knew how bad he was in terms of being such a, a neocon outlook. And if you back up to the 1990s, what, what, what we kind of learned since that time is free directly seemed to have squelched a bombing in uh, Saudi Arabia called the Kobar Towers. So that Kobar, I had, a, I had uh, some knowledge of the Kobar Towers. I think it was 96 or 97 that that occurred. 96. 96. Yeah. The reason is one of the 20, 21 young uh, Air Force men, <clears throat> men who died, young guy was from Minnesota. And I ended up being the victim witness uh, liaison with his parents and young wife. I think he was only 21 years old. And so Louis Free immediately became a micromanager of that Cobar Towers. And now what I didn't, and I kind of should have, I maybe should have, I knew he was micromanaging it because he would send out teletypes that I had to personally convey to the family. So I would have to drive up to this house where this, uh, the victims, the, the whatever. And then as, actually also one other time, we actually all flew to Quantico. The parents and the young wife and myself, I was like, I accompanied them for a weekend where free debriefed, uh, he would, would uh, you know, his, 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 uh, his pretense was that he was leveling with the families to the point where they even had a whole weekend with high-level figures, Janet Reno, Louis Free, the Department of the Secretary of Defense, actually. Uh, what was, who was it now? I forget his name. They all made appearances at this thing. And so the families, anyways, I found out later that what I was conveying to the families from Free actually all turned out to be lies. If you read Gareth Porter, and there's a lot of evidence now that the Cobar Towers was done by Al-Qaeda. Uh, no, look, Saudi Arabia had no, Saudi Arabia had no uh, willingness to own up to the fact that Al-Qaeda had done bombings inside Saudi Arabia. 
and that had killed Americans. So they were, uh, they were uh, covering this all up. And in fact, it looks like they, they uh, executed people that would, have been a, that would have been knowledgeable about who really did it. And on Free's last day in office, last day in office, he was able, uh, by that time, a change of uh, administrations, he was able to push through these indictments of Shiite, uh, Iran, they claim, they claim Iran-connected Shiites yeah. that, who, that Saudi Arabia told Free to blame. Essentially, this was the Saudi people telling Free this is who you blame. And, and, and in fact, the prior administration said there was very little evidence for this. They would not do it. But then the change of administrations, he was able to push it through on his very last day and then proudly crowed to the families how he had solved the case. And this was not the first time Free had uh, micromanaged things and screwed it up royally. He did the same thing in the Olympic bombing. He screwed it up royally by micromanaging. I knew little bits of how this was, but only in hindsight did I realize what a freaking neocon he was. Mm. And also because in, in hindsight, it became so obvious when he became a lobbyist along with all of the other neocon people in government for the MEP, the Mujahideen Kulk. That, which actually was on the terrorist list. He was actually a lobbyist for a terrorist group, the MEC, and was taking, you know, thousands of dollars. And, you know, you see those things, it takes a little while to put it all together. And at the time, I'm really, really sorry that I conveyed all of these misinformation and lies to the victim's family. And just because I was the go-between, the victim witness coordinator, I was telling them this stuff that Saudi Arabia want, you know, wanted to put out. Hmm. But so Kobar Towers, there you go. Kobar Towers should have been a wake up. And the other thing were the embassy bombings too. And I think if you talk to people like Ali Soufan, uh, even the coal bombing, uh, late, the very last one, of course, right before 9-11, uh, you, you find out that the FBI was being either duped very much duped by Saudi Arabia. Uh, and some of the agents like Sufan and his bosses in uh, New York, they were the only squad that actually was more in tune with the fact that Al-Qaeda, um, that bin Laden had turned against us, even though he was, our, he was our man in Afghanistan, along with some of the other Mujahideen. And we were uh, we were on that side in order for the strategic reasons of Brzezinski fighting the, the Soviet Union. So uh, along with the Chechen terrorist leader, but the, but so it was slow to figure out that your, your, your assets and your informants now turn against you. And I think some of that was just, you know, that way, but also because Louis Free was really solidly sold out to that whole neocon ideology and and the notion of mm. he's he's you know part and parcel of all of this. So he's always going to be slow to wake up about it. Right. You hit on you hit on a consistent theme I, I've been seeing throughout the last uh, twenty five years is that um, when there whenever there's a terrorist attack, and uh, you know any general historian would know a researcher would know that most of these are all Wahhabi oriented. Yet the primary suspect always seems to be 
either someone from the Shiite community, the Hezbollah, um, Party of God, and always a blame toward either Iran, Syria, Libya. Yet all of these terrorist incidents have a direct connection to the Wahhabi-oriented Salafi groups of Al Qaeda and affiliates thereof, like Abu Sayyaf or Boko Haram. And it's unfortunate that uh, Director Louis Free, you know, when you speak about the Kobar Towers, he actually had met with the um, uh, King Fahd and also the Defense Minister Prince Sultan bin Abdulaziz Al Saud, and basically agreed with them in getting rid of the suspects before they could even talk. And then it was the Saudi GID who basically dissuaded the residents not to speak with the FBI. Louis Free shuts down the case and there's no more connection. And he gets to take all the credit about closing the case. Uh, but the case was never closed as you outlined. Um, yeah, it's a gr that, that one is the most egregious uh, incident that I'm aware of. And yeah, maybe right at the start when this happens in 96, you can't fault anybody for not knowing. But as time goes on, uh, you know, as 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 why, you know, by the time he retires uh, in 19, uh, right before 9-11, two months before 9-11, June of 2000, of, of 2001 is when mm -hmm. Free retired. And uh, by that time, he, you know, he, and he's putting out just the opposite to the families, telling them how, you know, Saudi Arabia is so cooperative and all the rest. I mean, it's, it's absolutely opposite of what we, you later learn about right. the whole situation. Can you know? In, let's. I want to revisit. He, he later lies about Mac. I mean, right. so I find you find out that you know he he wasn't only just incompetent, uh, and maybe some of it is just pure incompetence too, because he's the boss and he's got very big head, like all of the people when they rise up that level. Um, but you also find out that you know he uh, is is. Uh, like outright not not telling the truth about sure. things. To, to just revisit, um, 1993 World Trade Center bombing, it, it seemed that New York, again, seemed to hit on the notion that it was more than just a ragtag bunch of individuals, but there was certain a bigger connection and very few agents were in on it. One of them was Frank Pellegrino, and he is the only person at the time who made a connection that this may be even a bigger connection. He started chasing um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, um, and he chased him even to Qatar. And there was a big argument between the CIA and the FBI about trying to arrest him. And he basically escapes the country because the prime minister of Qatar, not the prime minister, uh, the uh, president, I forget his name, but he basically warns uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, please. But it just so seemed that the FBI was willing to shut down any type of notion that there was even a bigger problem regarding Arab fundamentalists in the early 90s. Was that also the case in Minnesota or did they, did they get, in a, were they um, aware that there might've been a bigger or they just didn't know either? Well, the, the Minnesota agents, and again, I don't know how much background they had of Bojinka plot and some of these other things, uh, the 1993, uh, Ramsey Youssef and all the rest. I'm not quite sure, but I do know that they were up. They did know, they were pretty intelligent about uh, the, the background. 
maybe not quite as intelligent as Ali Soufan and others, but and Pellegrino or whatever, but they were they were up on it. Minnesota had just uh, started its joint terrorism task force a couple of months before. It had only been up and running for a couple of months before Musawi. Uh, the phone call comes in from the flight schools that there's a very suspicious student, the most suspicious we've ever seen. Two, two calls come in simultaneously from whistleblower uh, instructors. And that Joint Intel and Terrorism Task Force had only been in, in uh, created a couple of months before. The acting supervisor, who was a former uh, trooper, was a very smart, astute guy. I don't know how much background he had. And then the, they, they land on the agent who goes out and checks it, Harry Samet, who ends up testifying in the Musawi trial, was uh, not only in aviation in the Navy, so he already had this background in piloting and stuff, but he also, he was up on intelligence stuff. He was very smart about this. In fact, he comes into my office like two days, a day or two after Musawi was taken into custody. And he says, these are the possible statutes that I'm, you know, we're going to seek this emergency FISA search. And the, the, the two statutes he had found, one was interference in a, in a uh, aviation or something. I forget the name of it, but it's in a federally, federal aviation, whatever, interference, sabotage. So, I mean, those are what Musawi ends up charged with. The same two statutes out of 300 some statutes on the books or more that he, whatever, he comes in two days later and he points to. So it's, he was very astute and he uh, uh, knew pretty quickly that the, the tie-in was to bin Laden and whatever. He, he knew that that was the case. Of course, he knows even more after France comes back within days and says right. uh, Musawi is recruiting for Abu Qatab, who is, uh, you know, who is this Chechen terrorist leader. Now, here's the missing thing. And if you haven't checked it out, uh, read the Newsweek, I think it's Newsweek article by Philip Sheenan, S-H-E-N-O-N, yeah. former New York Times, called The Narrow Mischance. If you have not read that one, and that uh, Sheenan did not learn about this memo in April of 2001 entitled, Bin Laden and Qatab are entwined and going to attack. Mm -hmm. April of 2001. You know, I don't know. Our agents didn't know about that memo. Obviously, they were trying to say, well, because he's recruiting for Qatab does not mean he's connected to Al-Qaeda. You know, the Chechen terrorist group is a separate group. Right. Now, that memo says they're entwined. And in fact, they had been both fighting uh, armed by Char in Charlie Wilson's war, armed and funded by the United States to fight in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. And I don't know what they what what specific actions they were entwined with, but this this memo really makes all the difference in the world sure. because this argument that uh, that the argument that um, that uh, inv that that comes about is that the Chechen terrorist group is not a group that the FISA court would accept. Well, why aren't, why aren't they? Well, they, because they were our terrorists. I mean, you know, this is part of the problem. And this, these are some of the things that are unsaid. When an informant goes south or a, or a proxy terrorist group goes south, 
the the FBI is always going to be loath to turn on a dime and say now they're the you know whatever it takes you know look at Whitey Bulger case from for and many many others mm -hmm. okay so when that happens they're not going to be they're not going to turn on a dime and say oh oh our informant is the murderer our proxy group that we funded is now the terrorist group that's not going to happen at least it's not going to happen quickly and so i think that the fact that uh france comes back and has direct proof that musawi was recruiting uh, for abu Qatab, and then the connection to bin laden of course in my memo i write uh, i didn't know i didn't know about the memo in april of 2001 when i wrote my memo mm. in 2002 I didn't know about that, or I could have even been a lot stronger. I didn't know. And I again, I don't think our I know our agents didn't know about it. Now the question is who did know about it? Who did know about that April 2001 uh, memo? Well, the seven or eight assistant directors uh, who it came, it was a memo from Louis Free. And the reason this memo became public was because in the Musawi trial, it's an exhibit. That April 2001 memo is an, an actual exhibit in the trial. And uh, and again, Sheenan didn't even notice it until much later. Hmm. And so read his article first, read Philip Sheenan's, because when Sheenan goes back to, for instance, the people at headquarters who had were fighting with our agents, no, we can't do an emergency search. We can't take this, this to the FISA court. It's too weak. The Chechen group is not officially a FISA terrorist group. Uh, you have no real evidence that it's connected to bin Laden, blah, blah, blah. All these are, and then they watered down some of the, the, of the um, emergency affidavit, the emergency declaration. They watered down some of the wording in it. All these things that they did then to, like I said, to thwart it. Um, but, you know, I, I would have, uh, it would be my educated guess that neither of those two uh, supervisor or the supervisor's boss, the unit chief or section chief, whatever he was, um, I, I doubt they actually knew about the April 2001 memo. Mm. It's possible they knew about it. They could have searched and maybe found it. I don't know if they knew about it or not. But the name on the memo, one of the assistant directors was Michael Rollins. R-O-L. Yes. And he actually, he didn't, he acted like he didn't know about the Musawi case for months and months. He finally got trapped in, in a Senate um, or a, a congressional hearing of some sort, um, trying to think of when this was, like the fall of 2001, maybe. And Rollins is, is almost got caught in perjury. He almost got caught lying to Congress. But somebody in Congress knew that uh, that he some he they they knew somehow that Rollins knew about the Musawi case, and there's a there's a news article about it. I I could never find it in a million years again. But there's a news article in a mainstream news that says he was finally forced to admit that he had been briefed about the Musawi case. This this is after a, a while that he pretends he doesn't know about it. Now he. The, the, his briefing was apparently quite brief. It was an oral briefing in the hallway type thing. And so there's no like official documentation that he was briefed. 
but uh, and he makes, of course, he tries to make light of it. You know, something in Minnesota. Of course, I didn't take it seriously. It was nothing. Blah blah blah. But Rollins was on the other memo, April of two thousand one where this whole thing falls apart that oh you know uh it's not a it's not a group the chechens are not terrorists all of this falls apart when he also is on the now all of them claim they don't remember the memo and this is why after 9-11 uh you know what is so what is so compelling here is that you get all of this shock doctrine moment that now that we've been attacked, we know that we have to change everything. Everything changes. We have to start mass surveillance. Within a couple of weeks, uh, Hayden turns on the buttons that begin monitoring you know, Americans. Uh, all of those secret memos written by John Yu basically say, now we can do all the illegal things that we never could before under emergency the post 9-11 emergency, including torture, but all of these things were done. It wasn't, it wasn't just torture. It was a whole bunch of things right. that John Yu wrote secret memos right, right after 9-11, within days, essentially almost a martial law theory that it's an emergency and now martial law is in, is in place. Right. So, okay. So one of, so they go to this drastic level of saying that we can do all illegal things now under a form of martial law. And yet the one thing that uh, that turns out to be the biggest problem is that officials, and I don't know of any official who will say, yes, I read the memo. And I can't tell you why, either I can't tell you why I remember reading the memo, I can't tell you why that I did these things. Right. Every single one of them testifies in official inquiries that they don't remember the memos. And yet to this day, 20 years later, I don't think there's ever been any kind of very minor bureaucratic fix that they can at least have a way to find out if you read the memo. Even under J. Edgar Hoover, under J. Edgar Hoover and Clyde Tolson, you had, Clyde Tolson had this CT and you had to check off, this was all paper, but uh, when you read something or sent something, you had to do a little check off in your initials, your initials by the check off. It's a very rudimentary form of a tracking mechanism so that later on, you can't go and say, I don't remember that at all. But that, like I said, after 9-11, it turns out nobody remembers anything. And, and there's never been a fix of that. Okay, if nobody remembers, at the very least, what you've got to do is get some kind of tracking thing in there so that people can't, whether they saw it or not, that you can actually determine these things and you can't just say, I don't remember. You know, it's, it's a very small thing. No, we went to war, killed millions of people, tortured, surveillance, all these things. And yet, to my knowledge, this, this little fix that could have been a mechanism of finding out what you actually read or knew ahead of time. And, and I don't even ever see, in fact, I see it opposite all the time within the Sarnoff, in the underwear bomber, I see it all the time mm. that they find a memo that was written beforehand 
And then they say, your name is on it. It was to your attention. And that person is in official things. Ah, I don't remember. I don't think I ever saw it. Don't think I ever saw it. Never saw it. Don't remember. And that still is going on. Right. It's amazing. That kind of, what's the word, discrepancy, it's just, it floors me. And I say it in a lot of, I say it in, in many, many interviews. And to this day, most people shrug. It's like, well, well, they're powerful. Of course, if they don't want to remember, they don't have to remember. They're the powerful people and they don't have, if they don't, if they don't think they saw it, fine, fine. And, I, and I'll even get that from interview, you know, reporters and everything, even right off the bat. Amazing discrepancy. And, and that leads beautifully into the next question, because as we see with the FBI superiors about malfeasance, you're in the Minneapolis Chief Division Council in 2000, and there's another agency, and CIA's Alex Station, which is a virtual station monitoring the movements and financial uh, transactions of Al-Qaeda and bin Laden. They come into possession that there's two Al-Qaeda operatives inside the United States since Khalid al-Midar and Awab al Minneapolis is not notified because the FBI in general was never notified about this fact until August of 2001 at a national security brief. The FBI was suppressed by CIA lead management such as Tom Wilshire, the deputy uh, director of Alex Station, and at the time, the deputy chief, Michael Scheuer, who refused to share this information and data, and Richard Blee, who took over him in 1999. What it just seems that there is a, a lack. There's, I don't know whether to say it's malfeasance or something more, but I don't want to imply something else without evidence. But what you just described with the FBI, it seems that that's the same thing with the CIA in regards to, oh, we're not sharing information, but yet lie about it when they're investigated by the Senate and 9 11 Commission, in which they say, yes, we did share with the FBI, but they never did. Yeah. And the agent, uh, there were two or at least two, maybe three agents who wanted to share the information and uh, forget his name now, Rossini, I think. Mark it's Rossini. Rossini and Doug Miller, that's right. Yeah, and Ros Rossini now admits that he lied to the inspector general. So the inspector general, when they do their, like I said, my memo led to that right. uh, investigation. He was told he had to lie. And so there's an interview of Rossini. Uh, again, the, here's the reason for this, because there's priorities, the priorities. And of course, telling the, uh, God's truth to the public is the very lowest uh, priority. But even official inquiries of Congress and, um, and of inspector generals are a less priority then what somebody who is the head of, for instance, the CIA or the NSA will tell you is national security reasons. So when they tell you national security trumps the truth to Congress, for instance, most people that are part of the system are going to follow that. And Rossini would be the one to ask about this right. because he, he is, says this in an interview that he actually thought he had to lie because of national security. Now, here's the difference is that when you have a Brzezinski or these people at the top who are coming up with, uh, or Louis Free for that matter, who are coming up with their notions of national security and, uh, that, and the fact that not telling the truth about things matters more because of foreign policy goals. 
So they come up with their foreign policy goals and agenda. They, they conflate those with national security. So when a Brzezinski says, we got to do this, whatever, the, the foreign policy goal is conflated with, you know, supporting the Chechen terrorists. Well, okay, well, you know, that's not a good thing, but they always have that friend of the enemy. What is it? The enemy. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. The enemy of my enemy is my friend is always the case. They right. use, well, Whitey Bulger is a perfect example. Right. So I like to talk about cases that are publicly known like that. So when he's found out to be murdering people, it's much more important to cover that up. And that wasn't just a couple of rogue agents. His right. murders were covered up for a long, years and years. And in fact, it looks like Robert Mueller even probably knew about it and helps cover it up. And the reason is it's a bigger goal to get information from Whitey Bulger on his enemies in the Italian mob than allowing him to commit murders. So you're, you're prioritizing your goals. And when it comes to foreign policy, that trumps everything. It certainly uh, trumps domestic murders, for instance. You know, so if there's a, you know, you see this all the time with these assassinations that are occurred. Officials were thwarted in, in finding the truth about certain uh, ambassadors and, and, and heads of state, et cetera, who are assassinated if it conflicts with the United States, who, who certain people decide are the foreign policy goals. And they conflate those foreign policy goals with national security. So when you do that, you feel perfectly fine. Like, oh, well, it's, a, it's the noble lie. You have to do this uh, and uh, because it's more important that these goals be met. And as you see this all the time. It gets worse and worse and worse because now eventually, if you go down that road of thinking that the foreign policy goals trump everything, you finally get into outright lying to the public all the time, you know, making up false flags and everything else. It, it goes worse and worse and worse. But certainly just to avoid the embarrassment of all of this baggage of years and years of covering up uh, Al-Qaeda and bin Laden because we were the ones who backed that whole thing to begin with under Brzezinski. I think that's a lot of it. And, and then again, for, for little people down the line who might blurt out, actually innocently blurt out things, uh, they don't even know the big picture. It's only the people at the top who actually have all the dots, right. like a Rollins, for instance. Right. You know, the people at the top are the ones most privy to all of the dots because, first of all, they're more senior. They've been in it longer. So a first office agent hardly even, you know, basically kind of doesn't even know as much about it. When I was the, when I was conveying uh, information to this Cobar Towers victim family, I didn't know any of this of the bigger picture about Saudi Arabia. I only knew the things I was being sent to read. My my supervisor again. This is a learning curve that I've had now that I'm you know 67 and out of the FBI for so long. And, and, you know, as Daniel Ellsberg will tell you, it takes a long time to kind of put this all together. Mm. But, you know, with uh, my supervisor, my organized crime supervisor in New York for, for just for one year, I had a couple of other supervisors too, but this one supervisor I had for one year, head of the Bonanno family squad, 
was Lynn DeVecchio. Yes. And Lynn DeVecchio ended up being prosecuted for, you know, negligent murder because he was operating a top capo boss of the uh, Bonanno family, Scarpa. Yeah, Greg Scarpa. Yep, Scarpa. And just the same as Bulger, not for a year or two, for like 20 years, mm -hmm. same as Bulger. This wasn't a little short thing. He was handling a Scarpa for a couple of decades. And Scarpa was also, just like Bulger, murdering people. And there's a whole 60 minutes where Linda Vecchio, had, he gets off by the skin of his teeth because of a kind of a technicality. And he has this sly smile when he's finally uh, interviewed on 60 Minutes, you know, basically saying, you, you folks don't know what it takes. This is what it takes. You have to operate murderers. He doesn't say it outright, but he, he comes close to say, admitting. And this is the same thing in the, like I said, with foreign policy trumping, it's the same thing with all of the informants who go south. You're operating top, uh, Scarpa and Bolter were top echelon uh, informants. So they're the most important bosses of these, of these RICO families. They're the bosses of it. And the, and the FBI is operating them. Can you imagine the problems of operating the bosses of organized crime families? And, and in my whole career, there was almost nobody who ever said, hey, well, should we really be operating the bosses of the families, the top echelon? Or should we just basically be trying to get info from lower level people? So go back to what the only person who outed DeVecchio who kind of started seeing these things like, oh God, DeVecchio's leaking to Scarpa the same way Scarpa's leaking to DeVecchio was a first office agent with only a couple of years in. So he, he just naive, he's naive. He doesn't understand, he blurts it out. And I think he, he ended up being destroyed, uh, this whistleblower on, on DeVecchio. But that's, the, that's what goes on the whole New York office, Calstrom, all these bosses, the informant unit, all side with DeVecchio and he gets off by the skin of his teeth. That happens that I always tell people, Bolger and Scarpa, they're publicly known. That's why I can, you can talk about them, but they're the tip of the iceberg. This kind of thing goes on all the time, hopefully in lesser crimes than just outright murders like right. this, but it goes on all the time. And the reason for it is you find yourself on the wrong side with your goals. So your goals and your agenda eventually uh, end up on the wrong side. And, you know, it takes a long time to realize, you no, know, maybe uh, the Wahhabi proxy forces, maybe we shouldn't be uh, funding and arming them. Hmm. And you know what? They didn't even learn that lesson because in Syria, they went right back to doing it. It's never right. been learned. That's right. Never been learned. So French intelligence later receives word that Zacharias Moussaoui is inside the United States. And they sent a detailed memo to the Oklahoma and Minnesota field officers. And by 2001, a serious file has been secured on Moussaoui. Um, but it seemed that the CIA were made aware of Moussaoui at this point. Um, how, how were they, they made aware of him? And how long do you think they were made aware of him? Why didn't they inform him of you? So going back, you're saying the CIA knew that Musawi was in the country 
long before the, 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 the calls come in from the flight school right. to Minneapolis. See, I don't know anything about that um, firsthand or any, any other way. And from what I knew, when the agents went around our FBI headquarters to the CIA counterterrorism center, uh, from what I know, nobody ever told anybody that the CIA already knew about Musawi. I'm not aware at all that there was any, that the CIA, people in the CIA counterterrorism center themselves knew about that or certainly shared it with our agents. That right, would have changed. Is it, I'm sorry to cut you off. The reason why I'm saying that is because when the CIA was um, uh, investigating uh, this Al-Qaeda meeting in Kuala Lumpur in January of 2000, it's alleged that Musawi's there. Yeah, I, you know, it's possibly was, you know, because his, 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 uh, his associate that eventually links him up with, um, with Al-Qaeda was this Sufat or something. Yes, who is part of the, he's the, he's the guy who organized Kuala Lumpur. That's his business card that Musawi has links him right up with that. So it's definitely possible. I just don't know for sure. All I know is at the time that the, the argument with headquarters was going on and even the calls to CIA. Now, the reason the CIA counterterrorism center ends up producing this little two slide uh, briefing to tenant right away. You know, that, that's because the agents call and go around FBI headquarters and call directly to CIA Counterterrorism Center. They produce this little thing or fundamentalist learns to fly, whatever, and have six or seven talking bullet points in there. And Tenet gets briefed uh, like August 23rd, I think, something like that. August 23rd or 24th, he's briefed right very quickly, maybe even before that. He's briefed very quickly. And on the day of 9-11, he's having breakfast with his mentor in Oklahoma. Forget the guy, the senator, the former senator oh. uh, that that made Tenet what he was, his, his career guru, you know. Mm. He's having breakfast with him. Starts, I forget that guy's name. Uh, yeah, it's gonna, and, that's going to bother me because I remember yeah, him too. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, but anyway, someone runs in and says, a plane has just uh, hit the World Trade Center. And the first thing out of Tenet's mouth that somebody overheard, because it makes makes it into a news article. David is, Bourne. What? His name is David Bourne. Okay. David and Bourne. because he overhears it, it makes it into a news article. Tenet says, maybe it's the, is it the guy in Minnesota? Yeah. So that's how, and, and, and that is actually, when you, when you talk about the, the um, information silos, and the fact that information can't make its way vertically because of bureaucracy and pecking order and you can't make calls uh, over one level above you, which I testified to the Senate Judiciary as being a main problem. Nobody at a lower level is allowed to even make a call to someone who's more than one rung above their own level. That goes back to military you know, the FBI being a military thing. And if you do try to do that, you get into serious trouble. Um, and I, I, I think it was Feinstein at the time, she asked me a question and I said, well, there's a pecking order. I once or twice in my career did it. I made a call to a higher level person and you're, 
You're scared out of your mind to do that because that is not kosher in the FBI to do that. It's not kosher in, probably in any of the agencies. But the, the, the agents who went around FBI headquarters people to go to the CIA counterterrorism center, they got into trouble for that. You can't do that. And you know, if, if you, uh, for instance, in our office, um, not calling, um, okay, so there's, a, there's another lie here. The agent, the, the agent and his supervisor are tearing their hair out by the end of August. Hmm. And we don't have a special agent in charge. So the Minneapolis office's SAC had retired in early August. A few days before that call comes in, 10 days, I think, before the call comes in from the flight school, our special agent in charge, Doman, had, reti had retired to get a, a revolving door job to make more money. So he had, he had left. And so we, all we had was an acting SAC. So the agents, when they're tearing their hair out, his name was Ray Morrow, they go into him and say, you got to make a call. You got to make a call. They can't do it. They can't go above the, who they're talking to already. And they're, the people they're talking to are, you know, basically thwarting it. And so he promises he will. Moral promises he'll make a call, uh, i.e. to Rollins. I think it would have been to Rollins or some, somebody like that. And that he tells them he made the call and there's nothing that can be done. That all turns out to be a lie. The, the deal is he was afraid to make the call. How can, you know, people don't understand that, oh, the big brave FBI that you see on television shows, Ephraim Zimbalis Jr., and you're shaking in your shoes to make a telephone call. And that's exactly what it is. Because this bureaucratic, militaristic hierarchy is run on the operation that you can't make calls up above, a rung below, above yourself. And inherently, this acting SAC is already a rung below who he would have had to call because that's he's, he's not an SAC. And it goes on this level. I, I tried, I don't think Feinstein understood. Maybe she did. I don't right. think she understood me when I said, there's a pecking order and you can't do this. You, you, no, yep. I could have called. And my, my little mistake here is I should have picked up my phone and called Spike Bowman, who was, who was two rungs ahead of me. Right. You know, I could have called the the, the fourteen, the uh, the assistant legal person, which I didn't do either, and partly because uh, at the time, you know, first of all, you have a certain amount of trust in their ability to know all of, all of these things, and I'm trying to think of why I didn't call him directly, but uh, I could have called him directly uh, and argued with him, hmm. but at, but until Spike Bowman who is the head of it says, no, there's no probable cause. And I don't know all the facts. I don't know. I thought maybe Spike Bowman read it. Right. It turns out Spike Bowman lied too. He didn't read it. The Senate Judiciary Committee uh, forced him to own up. And this isn't until 2002, uh, you know, way later, over a year later, Spike Bowman admits he didn't read it either. He didn't read the draft declaration. So at the time I, kind of figured he must have read it. No, he was just orally brief, never, you know, determined, was it a two minute briefing? Now, basically the briefing could have been the guy, the headquarters uh, supervisor says, you don't want to go with these dumb agents in Minnesota, right? That's the briefing. How, what do they know in Minnesota? That could have been the briefing. We don't know what it was. 
they think they landed on a terrorist and at the most it connects to the Chechens. There's no probable cause, right? Mm-hmm. And that could have been the briefing. Sure. It, Masa- yeah. yeah, so it, it all goes right back to Masawi because Masawi, when he entered, when he calls uh, the, uh, the flight school, one of the trainers there, um, you were referring to him earlier, his name was Clarence Prevost. And he actually is talking to Masawi. Masawi is actually telling him, yeah, he's making these like very suspicious statements about wanting to fly a Boeing right away, even though he's never flown a pilot or trained in any type of airline. And he's saying, I just want to learn how to fly, not land. And he makes all these statements. So he calls the appeal. So in no, August- No, no, no. I'm sorry? Prevost no, does not, no. <clears throat> Prevost does not call the FBI. Here's what happened. Prevost is talking to other flight instructors at the school and telling them basically what you just said. This right. is like my most suspicious student. He tells him them all these things. And they have a little discussion. And, and uh, they say, God, somebody should call the FBI about this. And Prevost actually apparently either was too busy or too chicken. Prevost does not call. It's uh, two other guys. Um, I'll remember their names here too. They, they don't even know. And here's, here, when you have this kind of dynamic, that two separate flight instructors who are, who are getting the information secondhand, who themselves are whistleblowers because they're going against their own flight school. They are all the, worried about making a call because it hurts their flight school. And this is a paying customer. They're not supposed to do this. Right. And so these two guys don't even know each other is calling. One called to our St. Paul resident agency and one called into Minneapolis. They call within an hour of each other. And so that alone, that alone is, is really telling. It's very strong evidence that whatever. Now, when it all, then the agents go out, Prevost is the actual flight instructor of Musawi. He's right. the one who has the first hand. So when the agents come to Prevost, yeah, then he opens up and tells them, yes, all of these things that you're talking, what makes him suspicious? So once they come to him, he then tells them all these reasons. They go back and put this all, they work overtime for a day or two, put it all into a, uh, an emergency FISA um, request and, and then wait for the French uh, first French in, information that comes in and send it right in within within a very short time. But pre, here's the, the end of the story as what's his name used to say. The end of the story is Prevost of course becomes the star witness in the Musawi trial. And, in, and maybe even more or less embellishes to a little bit uh, uh, how he was so astute and knew all of this ahead of time, but he's not the one who made the call. And Prevost, Harry Samet puts Prevost in for a $5 million reward. And that is huge money. I've never in my life heard. He was the star witness. It was a terrorist case. Headquarters okays it. Prevost gets $5 million for testifying after he testifies in the Musawi. Probably, by the way, told he was going to get it too. So this is most in most witnesses, cooperating witnesses know they're going to be paid afterwards, which is already 
a problem for justice systems, by the way, because if you know you're going to be paid, <laughs> it will bias your testimony, sure. uh, especially $5 million. But I don't know that for a fact. I'm just surmising because I know it's the standard. Were, but, were, uh, the, were, were the two men's names, Hugh Sims and Tim Nelson? Yes. And so Nelson and Sims, yeah, Nelson and Sims uh, see that he gets $5 million and they're irate. They got sure. nothing, stiff. Sure. Right. And if, if they hadn't called, who knows what would have happened. And so then they make a stink about it and FBI headquarters gives them up. I think they actually give one of them 5,000 or 10,000 and the other guy gets a couple thousand. I mean, incredible. Right. They get, they get stiffed and they, they chuckle about it, you know, in a way I've had conversation with them. They were, when they, when, uh, when this first came out about the flight school, the, uh, Jesse Ventura was governor at the time, and he wanted to give an award. Uh, they wanted to give an award when, again, this was known that there were flight school whistleblowers who, who started this, whatever. And this is after Musawi's already charged, but before the trial, but before the trial. And, and I was on the phone even with Jesse Ventura's office and, and nixed it. They were that these two guys were not to get any award until after the trial was over, because it can impact the trial. You can't sure. give money and awards to, to people who could potentially be witnesses. And so we had to tell Ventura's office that they were not to give any recognition to the two flight school. Then later on, the other guy who becomes, you know, the witness becomes gets five million and they get nothing. So this, this is actually some news articles too. Um, the uh, Star Tribune reporter, uh, Greg Gordon wrote a couple, an article about this whole thing. And it was, it's egregious, but it this kind of stuff happens all the time, but not what doesn't happen all the time is $5 million sure. uh, incent award for a witness. I have, to get, I have to give myself a, a convenient excuse is that sometimes I, I, I notice this myself, like I'll mix the names up and say, like with the example of Prevost um, making the call. Meanwhile, it was the other two guys I just named. And this seems to be like, I think it's because of my old age. I'm getting there. I'm 51. <laughs> so I just want to make that excuse myself to say it's all yeah. plain ignorance. Um, but however, uh, you bring up uh, when it comes to Masawi too, on August 16, 2001, it was Harry Samet, John Weiss and Dave Rapp. They drive to the residence inn where Masawi and um, associates. Uh, I think just Weiss and Samick. I'm not sure if Rap was with them. Really? Um, yeah. They, they drive to the residence inn, and he's, Musawi's actually with uh, Hussein al Atas, and they separate the two and they question them. And then Musawi says to, I don't know who he says this to, but uh, Atas tells somebody, he says, Musawi believes it is, it's acceptable to kill civilians who harm Muslims and improves the martyrs. And yeah, they find uh, in, the in the hotel room, there's a, there's a laptop, there's a, a martyrdom will in our authors. However, and this is a big question, technical question for you. They can't expect, they can't expect these items because they need a FISA warrant. Can you tell my audience, what is a FISA warrant? The, after the church committee, with all of the abuses under Hoover and COINTELPRO, where up till that point, uh, the FBI, of course, is counterintelligence and criminal. 
Um, so the Fourth Amendment, um, which protects people's rights in a criminal case, does not protect your rights in an intelligence matter. So up until that point, Hoover could, under the auspices of national security, go around the Fourth Amendment. If he said it was national security, even domestic extremism, like, um, like Martin Luther King, um, he didn't need to really have very much evidence for those types of things. You know, they might write up a little thing, but they didn't have to have, they didn't have any formal mechanism. Hoover could do all of that. And it really wasn't, you know, you can say, was it illegal then? But the courts had not recognized this as being illegal, really. There were court cases, Supreme Court cases that had started to make this um, legal doctrine about expectation of privacy that might have, you could say, oh, well, it was already illegal. People have that debate, chicken or egg, you know, but bottom line is Hoover did it. After, the, after these things were, came out of the church committee, they had a compromise and in 78, they passed the FISA law because they said, well, they can't make it as hard as having to have probable cause of a crime. So you have to have a slightly different probable cause and that will allow you to go to a secret court so it will never come out publicly. It will all remain secret forever. And uh, so this FISA compromise went into place in 78. There was a woman at the Department of Justice, Mary Lawton, God, I remember some names, <laughs> Mary Lawton, who was the head of OIPR, which handled FISA warrants. And so when a lot of cases are combinations, the Musawi case is a perfect example. Is it a crime to sabotage a federal aircraft? Is it also could be an intelligence matter if you're recruiting for the Chechens, et cetera? Well, it's both. And actually a lot of them are both. So they, call, they came up with this doctrine. Oh, by the way, Mary Lawton uh, comes up with a system in her head of trying to keep the Fourth Amendment from being abused. So you're trying to keep the FBI from having an easy way, like Hoover, an easy way around the Fourth Amendment protection of people's expectation of privacy, that you have to have probable cause under the Fourth Amendment. You're, you're, so she's coming up with a way to do that, protect people's rights, the constitutional rights, and still... Uh, effectively have a level of information and even sometimes sharing that information. Now, Mary Lawton does this for years and years, but she, and she was still relatively young. I think she was in her fifties. She ends up having a back surgery and dies unexpectedly young. And when she died in the early nineties, around 92 or so, she dies. Nine of her successors can figure out what this system of what came to be known as the wall. A wall was to separate intelligence so that the FBI didn't abuse the constitution and, and, and was still able to do its job or whatever. So Jamie Gorlick writes a memo, uh, her successor writes a memo. There end up to be all these legal memos written that are all mutually contradictory. 
And, you know, an agent trying to do this job afterwards, I would go to legal counsel uh, conferences, and especially the New York office, especially the New York FBI office was running into all kinds of problems. Because that, that guy, my counterpart in New York or counterparts would raise their hands and they would say, you say in this memo to do it this way and you say in this memo that we have to share criminal information with DOJ. But they were all mutually, one was on secrecy. Now nobody uh, wanted to, this was like, nobody wanted to touch this with a 10 foot pole. Headquarters, I'm, ta I'm talking about headquarters, did not want to touch this with a 10 foot pole. Right probably because there's no good answer to it. So what we've come up with after 9-11, by the way, has been a lot of, of, of uh, violations of the Fourth mm. Amendment. Okay, so there's been, now it went from being afraid, afraid to share uh, information that came up in an intelligence case with a criminal investigation beforehand. Now it went the opposite way. Now there's no wall at all. And so now you do have the uh, abuses and potential abuses of the Fourth Amendment. It was just went, and maybe that's why the smarter people at headquarters, again, after this death of Mary Lawton, she was doing fine. By the, all those years from 78 to 92, it was not a, an issue or a problem. After she died, they didn't know what the heck to do. They wrote all these contradictory memos, mutually contradictory. Nobody has told the truth about that to this. I mean, maybe somebody has, but I don't think so. Because you know what? That makes us look like mud too. It means that for, for, for 10 years, uh, people either didn't understand or like a Jamie Gorlick, or they, they did their best, but they didn't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole, by the, by the way. So, um, so you, you said, what is a FISA? Well, the, problem with this is that they were so afraid they they came up with all of these quote unquote procedures not to violate the law before 9-11 and one of these was that you had to do all this checking to ensure that there was no criminal investigation already opened and that you were see you were just going FISA route because it was easier and it was a way around. And they'd say it didn't pass the smell test. One supervisor at headquarters prior to 9-11, uh, last name was Resnick, there are articles about this, got into trouble with the FISA court. He got reamed out, told never appear before us ever again, because you are violating the Fourth Amendment by not doing this, these procedures and this checking. And that actually has an impact then on all of his successors on 9-11, because they know that their predecessor got into huge trouble with the FISA court. And, and that's part of it. So this emergent FISA, FISA usually would take at least a month or two. If it's an ordinary FISA, they would have to really dot the I's, cross the T's, um, there was a, there's a debate about whether the FISA court merely rubber stamped everything brought to it because they had only turned down one or something before 9-11. They had never hardly ever turned them down. But then the free, free, Louis Free side would say, that's because they're so perfectly done. We, and DOJ would say this as well. 
They're all so perfect, eyes dotted, teeth crossed, that there's never been a problem with, with getting them past the FISA court. That's their argument. The other argument is that the FISA judges don't know exactly the facts of anything. You see this with the Carter Page. The, 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 the judges don't have any way of knowing the truth of these allegations that are in a FISA declaration, and they just rubber stamp. So there's two different thoughts on this. And I think it's probably both. I think before 9-11 that actually they were done very, the ordinary ones were done super, super well. They took a couple of three months. Now the agents were so worried, they didn't think they had a couple of three months. So that's, that's why they sent mm -hmm. it in as an emergency to be done right away. They tried yeah. to make it as urgent. And almost no, I don't know the numbers of emergency FISAs, uh, warrants that were approved. It was very small. So uh, playing devil's advocate on behalf of FBI headquarters, they would have had to go out on the limb to say this is an emergency FISA because I don't think there were very many, even though our agents knew it was an emergency right. and a lot of reasons. Uh, but there was hardly any. And then you couple it with the problem that Resnick had been, by the way, that was, that was the former head of the FISA court, Royce Lambert. He's another piece of work. He flip-flops all the time. You know, he's he's partially to blame for this uh, also because he's the one. And this Resnick thing was all bogus BS sh sure. shit. They should never have, you know, those procedures were all kind of stupid and whatever. Uh, but anyway, Royce Lambert, it, you know, bears some blame. And then he goes completely opposite the other way afterwards too. Sure. Now there's a huge, now there's a big question here because I think this is where the dividing line came in between the agents and the supervisors of Minnesota was that Agent Samet posits that both Musawi and Al Atas were conspiring to violate Title 18 of the US statutes relating to terrorism and destruction of US facilities. Now the memo is sent to the Radical Fundamentalist Unit uh, led by Mike Mulpey and both Mulpey and Rita Flack then send a request to the National Security Law Unit, Marion Spike Bowen. However, in the memo, Malpe had edited the request in which right. the memo was now an immigration issue, not a criminal issue, and edited out was Musawi's link to Al-Qaeda in Chechnya under Ibn Khattab. Yeah, Two-part two question. Why was the memo edited, and what was Dave Frasca's role in this? Yeah, I don't know. Frasca was... And Maltby were were in it together totally. As far as I know, they didn't disagree about anything. They were, you know, Frasco was taking Maltby's side on all this. Um, yeah, they they definitely changed wording and edited things that made the agents very mad. They watered it down. They not only watered down the emergency FISA request, they also watered down the warning to the FAA. That's very critical. They also watered that down. Now, Samet was so concerned that he tried locally to brief the local F FAA with the original strong warning that, because he knew that FBI headquarters, of course, the people here were the same things, you know, they covered up too. The F local FAA, like, who are we? We are, and we're not going to do anything. And the, the biggest way to have prevented 9 11 was simply if you combine Bogdan Djokovic's information along with everything that was happening, it was to shut the, to firm the 
the lock the, the cockpit doors. As soon as you lock the cockpit doors, it makes the whole plot goes, you know, up in smoke. They can't get into the cockpit. And when I, I got asked, I got grilled, whenever the, the debriefers, by the way, both the JICI ones and the inspector general ones that debriefed me and FBI headquarters in the heart of the administration and the public affairs that were saying the exact opposite with minders in the interview. Uh, I had minders in all these interviews, even with people that had top security clearances. So all of the people on the JICI, the staff on the JICI, I'm sorry, I'm digressing here, so bring me back, but all of the people on the JICI had top secret clearance because they were former FBI, former CIA, former Secret Service. That's the only people, they hired about 30 staffers. And they were all people that came out of federal agencies with top secret clearances. I still had an FBI minder in my interview in case I would say something that, that hurt the FBI. And this is with the, the, the formal Joint Intelligence Committee. Same thing with the Inspector General. Okay, so, you know, to be brave and tell them what you know, you can't do this. This is why Rossini, uh, you know, partially, you should ask him directly, but you know why he lies, because he knows that people will know exactly what he tells, even though they, it has nothing to do with, with uh, okay, so I got off base here on. Uh, uh, yeah, they edited, they edited the information regarding yeah, Masawi's link to Ibn Katab in Chechnya. Right. So, so. Uh, Shutting the cockpit doors is the number. Oh, so when I was in these things, when they get to the end of, you know, I would say, go through the story, what I knew and stuff, uh, they would say, but Colleen, there was no way to have prevented 9-11. I am paraphrasing because they wouldn't say it precisely in this leading of a way, but this is what they were saying to me. And this came up every time and it would be towards the end. They would say, but you know, how would you have, how would you have prevented 9-11? It, you know, how in the heck could this have been prevented? And so then I would have to say, well, yeah, yeah, it does take a while once the search is authored, once the search occurs to put it with Malaysia and Kuala Lumpur and, and Sufet to get the fingerprint of Ramsey bin Al-Sheep. Yes, that takes a while, but you never know if things could have been uh, speeded up. It turns out there are theories of how it could have been sped up. Greg Gordon wrote a whole article about how it could have been sped up, et cetera. So I'd say, well, who knows? Yes, I understand that this that actual search, it doesn't really link up with Ramsey bin Al-Sheib for after 9-11. So even if you would have gotten the authority on August 24th, the time just runs out. Okay, so then, but I said, but what if somebody then put two and two with the Phoenix memo? And I said, the final thing is why would they not have, with all of this that's known, just tell the FAA, the Phoenix memo, knowledge that Musawi's in flight school, tell the FAA, in stronger words, to shut the doors of the cockpit. And then they kind of looked at me. So this is this this would be what I'd go through. And, and by the way, I said if you would have learned of the Phoenix memo, it, you know, if our agents would have known about it, it, that would have changed everything alone. But all of these information silos where nobody knows, and again, there's the Phoenix memo, there's the hijackers in California, 
and nobody in the memos that nobody claims they ever read afterwards. When you put it all together, there's there's plenty for people who at least have, and and nobody would have watered down that FAA warning to them to shut the cockpit doors, etc. And then yeah, they kind of like oh huh huh, and they'd write something down in their notes. But the the reluctance to take any responsibility for something as horrible as killing three thousand people uh, like this is is. It's, it's just a natural human nature. Sure. And everybody who's part of an organization is not going to want to own up. It, it's just like the Catholic priesthood. It took 20, 30 years for anybody in that hierarchy to ever admit, oh my God, we had some bad priests that were abusing ch children. The first whistleblower was 1985 on the Catholic priesthood all covered up for years. And most of the people who covered it up were not bad themselves, but they can, you can't own up to bad things. You just can't, that's part of, uh, I know I would say this to liberal, I, a lot of liberals will say, oh, I would have, I would have not a person I have ever met in my life. I don't care how saintly or good they are, would have ever, ever, like that, that, that first office agent who said, oh, my supervisor is operating a murderer. You know what? It is one in a million person. And half the time, most of the whistleblowers I know, it's naivety, like a Thomas Drake, uh, whatever. It's naivety that you think, or, or, or even my cover, my time person cover with Sharon Watkins. Cynthia Cooper. No one would do this if they knew what's going to re result for them. Right. They are naive enough to believe, oh, the system is still good enough if I get the truth out. We, I thought the same thing. I never thought I would be fired. They were talking about firing me a day after my first memo in, in headquarters. And I went, whoa, I was, tell I was talking to top secret. My memo went to Feinstein and Shelby, who are Top secret, how the heck could I be fired for you know leaking and stuff? I can't be. I could not understand that because I was too naive. But you know what? That's our system is real. And you know what? As bad as it was 2001, it's far, far worse now. Far, far yeah. worse. You, you, you all right, 9-11 happens, and you become one of the very first people to speak out against malfeasance in the highest levels. You ended up writing a paper to FBI Director Robert Mueller, a bold move, documenting how personnel mishandled information regarding to 9-11. Um, and of course, to Zacharias Moussaoui. What did you write? What, tell us what you wrote to him. And, and by the way, I didn't even know some of the worst parts of it. I didn't know about, I didn't know everything about the hijackers that the right. CIA knew right. about the Kuala Lumpur. Right. I did not know about these early memos written months before that the Chechen terrorist group was was aligned with bin Laden. There, there was a lot I didn't even know. I just knew that I knew this part about the that, that our headquarters was lying mm -hmm. about the fact that there was no probable cause. And you know, they weren't even owning up to the problems of the wall at the time. They weren't, it was all completely, they, what, what happens is the cover-up really went too far. And so even somebody at the lower level could see that, oh, this isn't true. And at Mueller, who had only been FBI director for one week before 
he went in front of the cameras for a solid month or two months and said, we didn't know any information that could have prevented 9-11. Well, that actually went way too far. Right. You know, and I, I called up again, naive, naive at the time, the first time he went before the cameras publicly after 9-11 and said that, I called again at that point, I'm making calls. I'm not even worried about uh, the pecking order. I was making calls in, into his office and saying, please warn him not to say that anymore. There's, a, there's all kinds of stuff. There's, I don't know if I knew about the Phoenix memo. I said, here, we have a terrorist. Every time I talked to somebody after 9-11, nobody knew about a, a terrorist suspect who was under arrest in August of 2001. We had explained this over and over. And, uh, and there was a solid cover-up, solid cover-up, uh, something that hasn't really been publicly known is that headquarters organized a, uh, what I would best characterized as, this is our story and we're sticking to it, hmm. meeting hmm. after 9-11. It was on the FBI uh, headquarters meeting called in the Minneapolis office on Halloween of 2001. And initially they were going to have, so Sam, I don't know who, his supervisor, I'm not sure who went to it, two or three agents went to it his acting supervisor, I think, I'm not sure. They all, they went to this meeting where it basically was headquarters trying to tell the, the Minneapolis office to shut up. And uh, before this, because this wasn't known at all and, and our top levels were lying their heads off, including Mueller, because Mueller by, by that time, he knew, he knew what was known. Um, and Mueller has a history of lying about, he's not any golden guy that you put up like the Russia gate on the pedestal. He maybe not as quite as bad as free, but he was, a he lied to. Um, anyway, uh, they had this meeting and I called it, this is our story and we're sticking to it. And that, that meeting, the, the uh, Minneapolis office was allowed to say, here's what we knew, blah, blah, blah. They kind of sat there like this. I didn't go to this meeting. I was not invited. But initially, they were going to have the meeting with the Phoenix office and the Minneapolis office together. And I think somebody at headquarters realized, well, we can't have Williams coming in with Samet because they will be pretty strong if oh, they're together. Right. So they separated. They had the Phoenix office come in separately, obviously Williams, and you know, telling him this is what we're saying. Yeah, you know, this is our story and we're sticking to it. That there's no way we could have been possibly, you know, and they, and again, this is done in a very smooth way. You don't have to say these words per se, because everybody is, everybody knows what's expected. You don't have to give explicit orders. You know, you know, from the, 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 the wind blowing, which way it's going. Uh, but th there was these meetings. And then at, shortly after those meetings, there was a timeline that the legal counsels began to prepare this timeline. And they knew that at a certain point, Cheney would, would have to give in to having some official inquiry about 9-11. I think they started in November, December, preparing this timeline. And the timeline was skewed. The timeline was skewed to their narrative that there was nothing that could be done. There was no probable cause. You know, their, that was their, their, their narrative. And so at one point I would get copied on, on the timeline as it progressed. And at one point 
I saw that they were leaving out some, some key facts. One of the facts was that I was on the phone where I had personal involvement. And the one thing that I had personal involvement was I was on the phone with, uh, with uh, Maltby on 9-11. On the day of 9-11, I'm on the phone with him. And he says, you guys can't do anything. You can't go seek a, a criminal warrant. Uh, you, you don't know anything. Uh, your office is just one office. And if you do something like that, you could screw it. This is on 9-11 itself. And uh, you, you might screw it up for somebody else. And I say, well, you know, at this point, it would have to be the biggest coincidence in the world if, this, if the Musawi case was not connected to the New York, what's happening in New York. And he comes back and says, that's probably what it is, just a big coincidence. So I'm hearing from this guy, I'm, okay, so that's kind of a big little, they had this, they had lots of details. This timeline was all very detailed. Well, but it's missing that. And when I call up the headquarters to uh, legal counsel people, who by the way, I know, I know the people in legal counsel who are doing this, I know him personally. I worked with one in, in uh, New York City. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm told, no, that can't go in because that was only verbal. That was only verbal. Well, Spike Bowman's being uh, saying there's no probable cause was also verbal. But his is in there that the, the unit chief of the legal counsel said there's no no probable cause. Of course, that's in there. And that was also verbal. So I mean, am I, I know, look, you can see what's going on here, which is that they're trying. And the legal counsel, of course, like a lawyer, like a corporate lawyer, they're doing things not for uh, public truth and justice and whatever, they're doing things to protect the FBI. This happened in the Waco, it happened in every single investigation uh, internal is that they find ways to try to protect the agency. That's their job. I, I did the same thing in, in my office too. I tried to protect agents all the time when they messed up. You know, I, I talked about operating informants who go south. Well, I would go into judges and try to explain things. I mean, I, that's what you do as an agency counsel. Yeah. And so this was going on big time and it's, it's just the norm. Uh, after 9-11. So then when, when I got called to uh, be debriefed by the Joint Intelligence Committee, I couldn't sleep for a couple of nights. And I kept thinking of all these little little facts. And again, mm. I didn't even know half of it. And I, and I was afraid I wouldn't remember them. So when I'm in there, because I got a minder and I'm you know, nervous and everything, I thought, you know, I, and I said, I got to just put this on writing just because I'm not even going to remember it. And that's how it started. When I first started to do it, it was just to get it down in writing. Oh. I, I, didn't, I didn't sleep a couple of nights. I went into the office at four o'clock in the morning and started getting it all down because I was, it was like a day before I left or, or three, about three days. I only had about three, four days of warning that I was flying to New York, uh, to mm. Washington. And uh, so then I, I put it all down in writing. And then over time, I thought, here's what happened. The, the staffers, there were five or so staffers of the Joint Intelligence Committee that were doing the FBI. There were a few others doing the CIA and a few others doing the NSA, but there were like five. And so the, the, the head of these five staffers that were supposed to be doing the, the debriefings in the FBI were headed up by a former FBI legal counsel. 
um, forget his name. He was Irish. His last name, ah, I knew, O'Neill, no. Hmm. I can't remember his name right off the, offhand, but I, I actually knew the guy personally. I probably talked to him a little bit once or twice, but I also saw that he had been the legal counsel in the FBI. He was a unit chief, former unit chief. He wasn't just a low level one. He was a, a unit chief, kind of like a, a Spike Bowman. And he had been accused maybe by Grassley. I don't know who he had been accused by, but he was accused by somebody of having helped cover up the Danforth inquiry. Uh, Senator Danforth had done the inquiry of Waco. And this guy who was in the, F who was in the FBI at the time as a legal counsel uh, had been accused of that. And I liked the guy, I liked him. I, the little bit I knew about him, he was fine. And I actually, in my own head said, I don't think that's true, that he covered up anything of the FBI with Danforth. At the time, this is what I thought in my head maybe naive, but I thought, I don't think he is, but to be, but to be careful, because I thought he would skew it. So he was ahead of this, the Stafford. And because he already had a track, he was accused of having covered up a prior inquiry. I thought, you know what, I can't just give it to the Staffords. And so then that's what triggered me to say, I'm going to take it directly to a couple of people on the Joint Intelligence Committee, a couple of the senators directly. And so then I didn't know who to put. I didn't even know who the two heads of it, the minority and majority leader were. I just knew Feinstein and Shelby because I saw their names in a news article that they were asking questions uh, in the joint. They were on the Joint Intelligence Committee. And they were asking questions. I saw their names and I put the, those two on it. I put internal affairs on it. They call it Office of Professional Responsibility. I put them on and I put Mueller on. So I ended up with five. I had the, the Jickey, of course, I handed it to them. Then I had Mueller. I had to go to Mueller's office and drop off a copy. Then I went to internal uh, Office of Professional Responsibility. Then I took a cab over to the Senate building and delivered two envelopes, you know, sealed envelopes, one to Feinstein's office and one to Shelby. The only reason I did that is because the Jiki uh, staffers, honestly, I was not wrong. I think they would have covered it up too. My memo would have just been buried, totally buried. And if, if the senators somewhere, they're the ones who leaked it. They're the ones who leaked it to CNN and New York Times or whatever. Because I get this call two, a day or two later. Well, some staffer took it on themselves to, to leak it. And if that hadn't happened, you know, heaven knows, nothing would have come out. It, oh. it would have maybe eventually have come out, but it would have taken a lot longer. I, you know, my final question to you, after all this, uh, with all the pre-intelligence over the years, way before 9-11, early 90s, showing a strong link to Saudi Arabia, foreign intelligence having maybe foreknowledge that we're existing inside the United States. In 2002, Secretary of, of State Colin Powell uh, goes before the United Nations Security Council to get approval for the invasion of Iraq. And instead of using all the intelligence that is amassed by 
your office in Minnesota, Phoenix, New York, wherever. Instead, he uses unvetted information from the CIA. We get the war in Iraq. Give me your thoughts. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is the kind of, this is it, you know, again, this is where all naivety of being a, an inside person goes up in smoke. And I've, I've told people now, I am so cynical now. I hate to even admit this about myself. Uh, I can't, you know, like I sit here calling Fauci every name in the book because I know he's lying his head off. And, you know, he is lying. And Walensky is beautiful face, but she's lying her head off. And I, I'm so cynical now that I frankly have a difficult time believing anyone in power at all. And I think it, it actually, I think we're, we're at the, this kind of the empire and this hubris that Michael Scheuer talks about, uh, imperial hubris. I think the imperial hubris, as bad as it was on 9-11, 20 years later, it has gotten, I mean, it went from that bad to up here. It is just horrible. They think they can manufacture their own reality. Oh, oh Carl Rove. Oh, you stupid little people, we can make our own reality and you're just left to deal with the aftermath. Ha, ha, ha. That kind of, that thing that a, a Carl Rove, who already was a, you know, creepy, lying, um, you know, constant, constant line in pol politics. So Carl Rove is imbued with constant line. But Carl Rove's mentality about making your own reality, that's gone to everybody now. Everybody who's even at a low level, the Russia gate, uh, the COVID, all of this stuff now is everybody thinks, you know what? We own the media. We can lie about anything with impunity. Not a single soul has ever been held accountable for the most egregious. Colin Powell, my God, he's, he's worshiped and adored and he's the hero, blah, blah, blah. A couple of people on alternative media Call out Powell, he's murdered millions of people, all based on lies. And, you know, Condi Rice and, and Hillary Clinton and Samantha Power, both parties, it has nothing to do with partisanship. It's people who get those positions in power. They have no, they have no example of anyone who's ever been held accountable. So why should they even begin? Why should this even enter their brain and make them even think, I, oh, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I shouldn't say this. There's nothing to even enter their brain because we've now gone a full 20, 20 plus years and not a single bit of truth has ever mattered. If the little bit of truth, yes, dribs and drabs eventually come out, it doesn't have any impact on anything. Like I said, they, they I don't think they've even made a way for any bit of accountability to, to see if people can, uh, to prevent officials from lying that they either didn't read a memo, didn't see a memo, even when their name is on it, that they did see it, read it or, or whatever, and they would have to explain why they didn't do anything. Even that little tiny, tiny bit of making a bit of accountability has never happened. And people still go up there, oh, didn't see it, ah, didn't see it. I didn't know about that. And there's nothing to hold them to it because there's no way that you can 
you know, you know, a Grassley or someone might say, are you sure you didn't see this? That's all they can do. Or, or Rand Paul with trying to grill Fauci about the Wuhan lab. I mean, there's almost nothing and, and they can just lie with total impunity. And, you know, I'm sorry, I'm real cynical at this point, but you know, I have, I have the facts for the cynicism, you know, and, and the facts, like I said, I didn't even know about half of it. I didn't know how Louis Free, how could you stand up in front of a, a room full of parents and wives and husbands who died and spout out your lies from Saudi Arabia? How can you do that? How can Fauci lie about these things? I don't know. You're killed. I think the, I'm sorry, I'm going into COVID, but I think they're, they're, they're apt now to kill lots and lots of children. Um, if you have grandchildren, I honestly, five to 11, I think Fauci has no conscience whatsoever, but he in his own ego defense, I, you know, criminals have this, psychopaths have this strong ego defense. And if you're in a system where everybody lies and cheats and gets away with it, you're going to say, well, I'm not doing anything different than anybody else. And that's how very, you know, your ego defense is what's different about me. I'm, you know, that's DeVecchio's defense. He wasn't the only one. He was a one who got caught because of a, a, what he thinks of as a stupid first office agent. The same thing with, same thing with all of the agents who operated Bulger. They blame, that's what criminals do. They blame the victims. They blame other people. And they don't ever admit that they did anything wrong. Uh, what's his name at Me Lai? Um, forget his name now, but the, the guy, uh, the Me Lai guy who, uh, oh, I forget his name. The guy, the, the uh, soldier. Yeah, and he did no time in prison. He did nothing, but he got right. a Callie. Callie, I think it's Sergeant or Callie is the one, the main one. So William Callie, Cal yeah, William Callie Jr. Right. Yeah, Callie. Right. Finally, just a couple three years ago, says I'm really sorry for what I did. That's an unusual thing. Hmm. Uh, Callie said that. Uh, McNamara in that fog of war when he's grilled, he said, yeah, I made a couple of mistakes, you know, due to the fog of war. Uh, so that's, that's actually very unusual. The majority of people, strong ego defense, they are, don't admit it to their own self. They never did anything wrong. It was all the people around them, blah, blah, blah. And to some extent, when you're in a system, when you have systemic problems like this, systemic make your own reality anytime you want to make up your own reality you're allowed to do it because the greater foreign pot we're going to go to war with china and russia russia gate the greater foreign policy goals trump anything like that you know truth goes way down the priority list and when you're in a system like that almost everybody's going to lie because that's the that's the nature of the beast um sorry to be so cynical but no. Colleen, uh, FBI agent out of Minnesota, whistleblower, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much. Yeah.